Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today's guest on the show is Miles O'Reilly, aka Arbitus Yarns, one of the best music filmmakers in the country. He's made videos for the likes of Clan Hansard, Lisa O'Neill, David Keenan, Bell X1 and Lisa Hannigan, among many others. And you might have also seen uh, the online show he made with Donald Deneen a couple of years back called This Ain't No Disco. That featured performances by Rady Pete and a collaboration between Connor from Villagers and Nico Mooley, which is absolutely amazing. And there's loads, loads more. There's four episodes up online that you can check out and I thoroughly recommend it. There's no better way that you could spend a day. Miles is back with a new documentary in a similar vein to This Ain't No Disco. It's called Backwards to Go Forwards and it's available for free on Vimeo. This is the accompanying blurb because they explain it better than I ever could. Islander and Arbutus Yarns Presents came together and made this documentary to take a little snapshot of a very small portion of what special things are happening in Irish folk and traditional music right now. The artists featured here are as follows. This is How We Fly, Cormac Begley, Shalog and Muirin Ní Canavon, Rady Pete, Cormac McDiarmida and Brian Flanagan of Rue, Ye Vagabonds, Slow Moving Clouds, The Bonnie Men, Zoe Conway and John McIntyre. Interviews are spread throughout the show and they're thoughtfully conducted by Miles O'Reilly, Martin Burns and Donald Deneen. Backwards to Go Forwards was released on Christmas Day and made for a brilliant present. I thoroughly recommend it. I got to chat with Miles at the end of November while the editing of the documentary was still ongoing. We talked about some of what's featured in it, how his love of folk and trad developed, Miles's transition from musician to fully fledged and beloved filmmaker. You might dispute that, I think. <laughs> How This Ain't No Disco came about and lots, lots more. Thanks a mil to Miles for the interview. I really enjoyed it and it was a privilege to talk to him. I started by asking Miles what made him want to make Backwards to Go Forwards. The new documentary, I guess for me, was an exploration, is an exploration of traditional music. I have come across traditional music just through my line of work, not seeking to listen to it or it's never been on my in my radar because I grew up with popular culture we all have and traditional music seems to be um, quite remote in terms of where it's practiced naturally and just coming from Dublin and being a West Brit it was hard it was hard for me to listen outside of the context of kind of diddly eye or to listen to it as an art form and not put an immediate stamp on it like oh that's just Irish music you know and as soon as I did delve into I guess there were some characters floating around from a traditional background that when I heard they had a traditional background I could hear the I could hear that influence in their music and then when I did get to hear them eventually in a traditional setting in, in a pub in a session or in a, in a, in a gaff playing by a fire. I had Cuevin O'Rahlick nine years ago play in my house and we had the fire lit and we played a traditional tune and kind of like I remember then thinking yeah it's you know it's it's an Irish tune you know I wasn't blown away but from that moment on whenever I heard a fiddle on the radio that's I I, I could hear I could differentiate who was Cuevin O'Rahlick, if I heard him on the radio, if I heard a fiddle on the radio, I'd be like, I think that's Cuevin. And I'd wait for the end, and it'd be John Kelly John Kelly going, oh, that was Cuevin O'Rahlick. And, you know, it's kind of like, that's how it came to me. It's soaked in that way. And I guess the documentary is about giving people, in a short space of time, 
that same journey of discovery. And how did you decide on the artists that actually feature in it? Like there there seems to be like a healthy mix of uh, new and kind of more established, more kind of uh, the lexicon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I needed the spectrum. I mean, from their world, what in a in a traditional in the in traditional music, there's there's the very raw, ancient kind of um, musician who will have listened to all the older generation of musicians and recordings, even from a hundred years ago, and they stay true to that. Just because it's quite truthful expression, there's no Western influences or other influences. It's very a very Irish traditional expression. And then there's the there's the complete other side of it, which is like pop and produced and thinking about their work in terms of songs and singles and albums and track listings. And so an example of that would be Enya or Clonard, you know, and not to not to say what they're doing is bad. It's just that they're thinking in this completely different spectrum, too. So I try to get the whole the whole um, diaspora in there, you know, with kind of uh, the older generation, the guys who are kind of, you know, continuing on the tradition. Do you think that they're a little bit closed towards like the modern sensibilities or do you think they're just kind of like honoring what's come before? It's a really that's a really good question, because there are some debates I've come across a few debates where older, very set in their ways, uh, traditional players might give out about contemporary and how contemporary music um, is influencing the tradition. And what I came across in making this documentary, there was very little of that. I think the older players seem to be much, much more open than, than we might think, you know. And maybe Ireland is changing in so many ways, so I think maybe that's just part of the the change. And is folk kind of like what you listen to the most now? Has that kind of changed so much now that it is kind of uh, your your number one go to on wherever you listen to music? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's actually it's actually not what I listen to at all. When I was a practicing musician, maybe I stopped. I seriously stopped doing that. Like. 10 years ago that's where I left myself creatively in the process as a musician I left folk music I was a folk music writer and I had publishing and I really enjoyed my trade and I was really good at constructing folk songs and finding influence in the rest of it and I think when I left Bonnie Vera was just coming on the scene you know and that was great for folk music in general since then, it just seems to be like maybe I'm traumatized, but <laughs> I listen to all kinds of music, you know, um, and I like ambient drone music and I like soundtrack music and uh, and like I like stuff that's not really song structured. But I think where my expertise are in my where my ears left as a musician 10 years ago, I think I can discern if a folk musician is giving the 100 percent expression that folk music is supposed to be you know there's supposed to be no kind of influence other than it's music of the people and the people expressing themselves maybe through the one person everyone can express their culture through that person and that's what folk music is for me and i think if that's diluted with western influence or or with like electronic or whatever beautiful music it exists it's less and less folk music and i guess what i'm trying to do is it's an extension of what i learned as a musician is um how i approach my work and how i choose my artists is just to try and 
mag- magnify what I learned as a player about folk music and magnify that for people who enjoy folk music. And when you're recording uh, these folk acts performing for the camera, do you know when they're not giving 100% or or does it matter when you're doing like say multiple takes of it you know you can mix and match or would you stop them and be like come on where's (laughs) I'd stop myself and just not tell them that I'm not rolling anymore and uh, I'm just like you know tell them to go for a walk maybe and come back and you know breathe some fresh air come back and play it again Uh, I can definitely tell if they're not giving their all it's kind of like there's a, I guess it's kind of like drinking water and you can kind of taste, there's a metallic taste, you know, if it's tap water. And all water is beautiful, but you can kind of tell if it's not, you know, if there's something in, in there. How did your style kind of develop? I guess we'll, maybe we'll come to your journey a little bit later, but just your style. I think, I mean, you can probably explain it a lot more. I think of, when I think of a Miles O'Reilly session video or a video in general it's kind of like lots of close-up shots Mm. of people playing i think the stage who said it there's some like it was said about marlon brando that his face was when he was being filmed by directors back in the heyday there's a lot of close-ups of his face and if you think about the audience in a cinema watching the screen his whole face is the stage there's so much expression and so much could be read from his facial expressions. So when I, when I think about musicians, it's often what's missed for me when I watch music on television is that we don't get to see the tiny little facial movements and expressions that, you know, that, that say volumes about how the musician's feeling. It bolsters the whole sincerity of of folk music it's supposed to be sincere it bolsters that i think when you hear a folk song and you love it that's great but to also see it and you get this extra dimension and i think it has to be close it has to be in on the eyes you know are you kind of more interested in the longer form now or are you kind of like a music video here a music session there and then kind of a 40 you know are you trying to do all of it or is there one that you kind of prefer or specialize I guess I'm, d- I'm definitely trying to do all of it, but I'm doing longer form things because people are enjoying them and it's like, all right, more people are going into the long form, the 30 minutes or the 40 minutes and there's a kind of a greater, there's greater feedback from the from the long form things, you know. I get to read my all the comments that people leave and stuff and I really get feedback that way. It's pretty encouraging how people are really digesting the long form format. I guess it's reflected in in the in the world at the moment people are going to Netflix and watching like you know these huge episodes which are really just long books like films that are like no 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 we'll 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 film the whole fucking book <laughs> and you and and you can watch that you know every chapter is an hour and people are loving long form at the moment and so I guess it's just a natural response for me to do more of that you know are are you able to see the analytics of the videos like or, or is that something that you'd ever pay attention to like if if you're looking at say a 40 minute video and there's kind of like a dip like 20 minutes in are you like why was there a dip there you know was it because <laughs> you know i did this interview when it should have been music or something? yeah <laughs> yeah no the analytics are always the same like the dip is there like the dip is there it's like but, but you're kind of like the guys who stick with it will will yeah i'm more interested i want to know the analytics of the people who stay you know, there's this two percent of the people who watch it till the end. I want to know all about them. Yeah. How do I do that? You know, that'd be a much more interesting thing to go to. 
but I can't yet anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's talk about your, your kind of journey. You alluded to it earlier. You were in a band playing music for ages. Yeah. I had fun doing that. Like, I think anybody who's really mad about music, who's kind of nuts about it, I guess, like super fans. I see people at the front row of lots of gigs when I, like, if I keep doing a gig, let's say, for if I keep filming, let's say, I've been filming Glenn Hanser for years now, you know, and there's the same people at the front row and they're absolutely mad about his music. And what I've kind of learned from talking to them as well is that they're super fans in a way. They can understand what's happening on the stage and they know if he's played a bad chord and they know that new bass player isn't working out and they know all this stuff and he loves them for that they're almost like band members but they're so close to being musicians themselves really that's the whole thing that's why they go that's why they have to be at every gig and so i'm just one of those freaks who can do it for a living like you know when when were you playing music was it kind of like at the turn of the century in dublin yeah it was the noughties like it was the end of the noughties and going through into the noughties and uh got away with it really and uh, like I keep laughing because you know we weren't super we weren't that great it was abandoned like we weren't all time York we like we definitely weren't Radiohead by any means but um we grew out you have to grow out of it I reckon you know when you know it's not for you or when the combinations of things that's with the band and the people who work for you and everything just don't all click or align you get tired and bored and disenfranchised and just leave and thank god i also had photography and film skills to go to like you know it's it's a funny kind of period that i don't know if i've chatted with enough people about it because it's kind of like a little before my time you know like the early noughties in dublin some people see it as like this amazing time and it was like a breath of new musicians coming in whereas others kind of see it as kind of oh it's another singer songwriter you know it's kind of that <laughs> that kind of thing like as someone who is in it like did did it feel kind of fresh and exciting? Like, were, I mean, the cliche, were you in Whelan's with Glenn Hansard all the time, having a pint, like, listening, to, listening to him play a new song? Yeah, that was the only thing that was going on, really. It was like Glenn Hansard and Bella Swan and Damien Rice and Lisa Hannigan, and they were all friends, and they all supported each other. And I guess that was good for them. But for a lot of people, I think the Nordies was a shit time. Uh, as in music fans? Uh, music fans and music and, and musicians. It was pretty shit. It hasn't changed much either. Really, there's the, the internet has changed things massively in terms of what people can listen to and what they can consume and what they can learn and who they can find and like follow genre-specific things. And well, we didn't have that, and that's beautiful. But in terms of the industry in Ireland and the opportunity in the industry in Ireland, there was zero then. Uh, just as there really isn't that much opportunity now. Is is there anything you think like is a quick fix solution that you'd like bang the drum for? Just like more funding, more. Yeah, well, radio for one, like radio for one, give radio stations to everyone, anyone who wants one. You know, um, I wish advertisers just would loosen the grip on that. I I think so as well. Like, I mean, some people might be like, but I never listen to the radio. But I think that for a band, you can never downplay how big you can get just from having a song on today fm like once an hour every day for like a month i mean i think little green cars wouldn't be still selling out venues if they hadn't gotten like the john wayne played on today fm regularly like 
eight years ago or whenever it was. Yeah, yeah. I remember a little fella from Cork, Brian Didi, he came to me for a video and, and we did a small video like eight years ago and then afterwards he was picking my brains for ages going, how the fuck does somebody make it in Ireland? And I'm, I was just like, well, you just send the DJs that exist on the national broadcasting. Uh, you just you send them your stuff and you keep hassling them and then one of them will play you and then and then and through that you might get playlisted and if you get playlisted they then might playlist everything you send to them after that and if they playlist you three times over the course of two years like you'll start filling venues and it and he went and did it and he went and made that happen you know i i might i wasn't the only one he went to for advice obviously he you can see that radio is like that I, I guess um, I guess it's kind of sad too because they can only really fill a small quota. They can only like take a chance on on a few artists, and it, so long as those artists kind of fit the criteria of their their specific audience and their marketing group. That's where I think the internet comes in, though, as well. It's like it's not just Ireland. You know, you can have a global audience if you want. Fontaine's DC are a band that I've uh, been going on about Amazing. for a month or two yeah. now, and like. They kind of got big by sending their demo to KEXP. They send it to the right person in KEXP who they knew kind of likes this type of music. He plays it. And then if you have press releases, you can be like KEXP band. And it kind of goes from there, you know. I think the bands can kind of be like, it's not just 2FM and Today FM anymore, you know. It's not. And like the acts, the acts I work with, like Lisa O'Neill and Eve Vagabonds, and they've all gotten deals abroad, you know. It's like Domino Records and, and Rough Trade Records and those guys are looking at Ireland for for obvious reasons because because they, they have this kind of faction of folk in, on their roster. What I am really concerned about in Ireland is that their Garth Brooks can sell out the stadium for like five nights in a row. That's an enormous amount of people who love Garth Brooks. And what's really sad is they don't know any better. And if you think about the regional radio stations. They play Garth Brooks every fucking day. Garth Brooks is all they know. And then all then every other country, Western, Irish, weird country, Western act, as a result of that, might get, like, regional, might fill venues and their local pubs. And, but, like, that's kind of fucked up that there's oh, that many people, the stadium for six nights in a row, and all of those people could be aware of... Definitely the folk music artists in Ireland who don't earn a penny, you know, and could be and could be just just through radio, just through the radio playing Irish music. You know, I don't know why that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, I'm from West Cork, and so our local radio station is C103, which my dad listens to okay. all the time. And it, and it is kind of proper diddly eye music, particularly on a Sunday. Yeah. And I'd love the idea of, like, you know, we're, we're driving together and he switches on C103 and suddenly it's like a Ye Vagabonds yeah. song comes on or something. Yeah. That'd be amazing. It would be amazing. <laughs> It'd be amazing. And they, I think that they'd fit right in. You yeah, know, I think, I think that, that, you know, he wouldn't yeah. bat an eyelid at it. They would fit right in. It's just that all these radio stations, they don't want to take a chance on advert. Like, their advertisers are what feed them money. That's the only reason they exist. And the advertisers are going, who the fuck are you vagabonds? Put on Garth Brooks. We need them to whistle all the way to work to fucking Garth Brooks and then listen to our adverts. That's just the way it is. It's so corrupt and so wrong, so commercial and westernised. But like, why does London have so many stations and such a thriving, like culturally like thriving underground music scene where you can be in one locality of London and like 
fill gigs and sell records and make a living just because for that reason that they have all the the radio stations there like why can't we do that here it's just it's it's a perennial question it's kind of like the clo- a, a closed gate kind it's of thing. a closed gate and the more the more i look into it it's like the there's only there's very few very powerful people who control the whole thing you know um <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think we'll we'll actually solve <laughs> solve it in another in another twenty minutes. So. We won't. But like Michael Collins, you know, if we had a Michael Collins that could just go around in one night, just take them all out. Well, Simon Maher, who I think he founded yes. Phantom Phantom FM, and he's uh, Eight Radio as well. You know, he's very vocal about kind of what is going on, what is the process, and yeah. I th- I don't know if they specifically Eight Radio were turned down for an FM license recently enough, but yeah. um. BAI did rule that like there's no spi- what was it I think it was that there was it wasn't diverse enough or something maybe wow. you know it was so- it was something like that I can't I can't Unreal. say specifically but it's just like yeah mm. it's not going to be for another year or two anyway that poor dude I love him to bits you know like what he's done since Phantom FM and we were talking about the noughties like one of the only reasons there was a scene and like Glenn and friends could have a community was because Phantom FM was playing their records and those kids were going to the gigs, you know. Uh, and it was music fans as DJs as well, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. Like they were, they're super fans as well. Like I kind of like, kind of like why I'm always going to be filming music, you know. And I'm a super fan, but they were, and they're still there. Like they're still out there as DJs, just working for the man now. <laughs> D- did you study film in college, did you say? Or was it photography, or was it both? Yeah, photography, yeah. I, I did animation. I did uh, classical animation and photography. And um, what made you pick up a film camera then in, I think it was 2009, was it when? Yeah. You start, when, was that when you started Arbutus Yarns? That's when I started Arbutus Yarns. I moved, I, I moved into a house which I bought in, on, in Arbutus, Arbutus Place in Lambert Street. That was the point in my life where I dropped being a musician for all the obvious reasons and uh, picked up a camera. I think I picked up a camera and started filming my favorite musicians. Actually, there was a there was a like there was a list of about eight musicians that I really admired because there was something about them that uh, they didn't conform or they didn't they didn't have to conform to any kind of like there was no motivation behind their creativity other than just wanting to express themselves and 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 somehow they had large audiences and devoted followers uh, without ever having to like write the pop song or feel that they had to comply like these these are musicians that I love that like just told the industry to go fuck themselves and and uh, and preach that a lot as people so I I I decided I, wa- I wanted to know them. Like, they have, I have a list. And Ronan O'Snodig from Keela was one of them. And Liam Mwaley was one of them. Donald Deneen, even, though he's a DJ, not a musician, he was on that list. And I'd never met any of these people. And I just decided I'd go to gigs with my camera and ask them questions. And it felt like it was easier to get them to say yes to that than it was to ask them for uh, an opening slot. You know, can, can, I, can I open for your gig? It was much easier to say, you know, can I come and film your gig and then ask you a few questions and get to know you? You know, since then, a lot of them are, are great friends of mine. And I'm glad that I just decided to have this life shift where, where I started to focus on, I guess, asking those questions and translating those answers for the wider community of music fans. And back in 2009, when like YouTube is a couple of years old, like was there many peers 
that you discussed like with making music or music videos with is, is there any that jumped to to mind or did you kind of see a niche that uh you know oh i can fill this no there wasn't like i was i was hugely inspired by blogger tech in france by vincent moon that he was that his cinematography style was so fucking beautiful that he'd do everything in like one takes which uh, i still haven't really managed I, i'm not going to be able to do that it's just i don't know how he does it it's incredible but watching his thing and then coming across like directors like Werner herzog and like being informed of direct cinema where where the camera's in the room but like the subjects that are being filmed just don't seem aware of it even if they are aware of it even if Werner Herzog does a fiction movie it just seems like the actors are playing out their scenes with no real direction other than the camera witnessing what they're doing and I thought that's a beautiful way to communicate music it's almost like well how do you get that extra dose of watching listening to song how do you get that extra dose of witnessing it in front of you in two dimensions on your computer well it kind of like through direct cinema and through the way vincent moon was handling things so i guess that a couple of things came together with again then with all those questions i wanted to ask these these formidable um traditional musicians in ireland as well and, and the likes of donald and ian as well i just uh, it all just came together at once in 2009 and i just I, I threw the shit on youtube and there wasn't anyone else in ireland doing it like uh, like I, I i became aware that there wasn't anyone else doing it when when everyone started emailing me asking me could they could i come and film their gig and it was overwhelming the response in the early days it's not the same anymore i might get one email a month saying asking me you know listen to this and do you like it and i'd love to work with you but like when I started in 2009, by 2010, 2011, my inbox was rammed with people who were excited and wanted to be on YouTube, wanted to be, wanted me to study them, like, you know. Is, is that kind of a good thing now? You're like, oh, I've finally got time to, <laughs> you know, like you're probably able to pick and choose. Uh, yeah, sometimes too much. I mean, a couple of years ago, I got a little bit too relaxed with it all and picking and choosing. I just got broke. I just, I just worked myself um, into debt and I, you know, I just, I was too relaxed. There's an element of having to find things and there's an element of like searching for great music now that I've adopted. And if I go away for a year, there'll be somebody who will come along and film my boots, you know, and my email will be quiet and everything will be harder. <laughs> One thing I was wondering was, do you have to know or like the person's music who you're going to film like does that matter or could you just show up and like within 10 minutes you're recording them and figuring it out do i have to know for my behalf do i have to know them or yeah like do you have to know the person behind the music and do you have to like the music itself it's kind of like that old way that record companies used to sign acts they would have to go and see doesn't matter how great they were in a recording the record company would send an a&r man to go and see the band and then meet them afterwards. And it was a kind of a psychological, like they would want to know, are, they, are this band dickheads or not? The first contact would all be about that between the, between the A&R man and the, and the band, you know. I guess it's the same for me. I definitely need to see them playing live just to know that I guess they're not faking it and that they can do it naturally and that it's, because I, I was faking it for so long, I can tell if somebody's faking it. And then that definitely makes me more keen to follow up on, on what they're doing. And I think most of the time, if I, for the likes of This Ain't No Disco, where we're, and shows where 
finding emerging artists is a thing. I fucking love it. And I love help, helping them in some kind of a way. And it also pays off if they get signed to a label. They'll get me to do a video and they'll pay me for it. It's like, great. But um, I guess I've lost tr- track of what I was just saying. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll find it again. I guess I do need to know that they're sound of mind. And I, like, I will leave it. Even if I think a song is great, I might wait till they write three or four great songs before I know right well i'm gonna work for them now for free for as long as i can until it works out for them do you remember the first video that you made as arbitus yarns yeah it was for ronan snuddick i turned up at his gig in Whelan's, and my first live gig was for him it was fascinating for me because i'd never filmed a live gig before but i remember like thinking how boring everything looked on the camera i was like where how how do you, how is this interesting and the camera had this it was a friend's camera and it had an amazing zoom but as, as soon as i zoomed in on his like bowron and as soon as i got the zoom in on on his uh on the sticks he was using for the bowron it just looked super close all i could see was these shades that were in time with the music i was like there we go that's perfect like there it is like that's a lava lamp now that's interesting that's what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. That, it was that Zoom that kind yeah. of like, this is, yeah. this is the style. Get right in on the things that like just make you stop watching and listen more. It's kind of like that repetitive motion of his Bowron playing. But it was also lovely to see that happening and realize the thing like, you know, aesthetically, we don't need to see what's going on. We just need to feel it through our eyes. Do you um kind of keep up with the other directors that are coming through or, or are you just kind of like, I guess it's like someone making music or something, you know, you don't want to pay attention to what's happening, uh, <laughs> or, you know, in popular music. So, you know, you want to kind of plow your own furrow. I know uh, so many, so many musicians. That's a real, that's a pain in the ass, I think, for them. Like they have to like love their own bubble. They have to know what they're doing and be really confident and, and they don't want to hear maybe some other actors kind of similar and maybe selling more records or I don't know they close themselves off musicians I, I, I find that, that there's a bit that's quite competitive and they don't communicate with each, with each other as much as they should I guess when I started doing this when this became a career I knew from the outset that I didn't want to close myself off in that way so I do know all the other filmmakers out there definitely the music specific ones like i'm a huge fan of their work like and i'm inspired by their work i don't think i could ever make a video as clinically perfect but as free and liberating as finn keenan like finn keenan's work he's worked with the stripes a lot and but he does a lot of commissioned work over in the uk now for all the obvious reasons but i love his work and then bob gallagher Bob Gatter is just fucking great as well. But it's that cinematic thing. And he went and did a course at Werner Herzog, an actual course where Werner's in front of him. But I, like, I'm so inspired by Bob. And there's, there's a rake of them, like, there's a rake of them around. I guess it's kind of narrative videos that I associate with Bob. Is, yeah. that, is that anything that you'd be interested? I don't, I don't really know if you'd say that you've kind of done like a story no. driven video. No, I definitely would never do much story-driven videos. They'd have to be, like, random. It would have to be, like, maybe create a situation that goes manic and becomes mayhem. Creating the situation is as much as I'll do, and then I'll let it happen and try and document it in a direct cinema way. I I guess, like, kind of the big thing that I was going to ask you is this ain't no disco, but what were kind of the highlights in between, like, 2010 and 
like 2015 when you started this ain't no disco are there any like high points that you can think of like i remember going to electric picnic back in 2013 i think and you had the arbutus yarns lodge I, d I think that was what you were calling it where you were just kind of showing videos and it was like this nice kind of space away from everything yeah that was fucking deadly that was the the avril who runs body and soul she was just like um uh, i'd been working filming for them filming music and she'd obviously seen that that and whatever and seeing other stuff I've done and she's like do you want a space to show your films and it was just a yurt and, and we had a cinema screen in the yurt and uh, some people loved it and other people were like why the fuck am I watching live music in a yurt when there's live music like all around me in reality um, so we actually we listened to that one person and we started putting on gigs and that's become bigger and now we're a stage well, that's fun what was the question again? And any other highlights <laughs> in uh, kind of that span of years? Like, was yeah, there any kind of, the, what, what were the cool thing, cool opportunities that you got to do? I guess the coolest ones were traveling with, were like, doing a lot of work with local musicians and emerging artists, and uh, doing a lot of fun stuff. But then getting like big commissions from like well-known artists and getting to travel abroad and like working with bigger budgets. It's really, really, really exciting, and I guess, I guess I can. I think Mick Flannery was a big deal for me, and getting to work so much with him, like getting right into an album where I'd understand. I do three, I do all the videos for an album, like and really get into the record and really be more involved. I guess in the in the whole in the whole scheme of things, um, Glenn Hansard and Lisa Hannigan as well, and doing so much much work with them and then feeling like part of a team and then when go, going touring with them and making tour films and then getting to know the people who tour with them every year and like the, it's getting to know the family of a successful artist and the unit and it was a different side of the industry that I'd ever seen before and not a lot of people would be privy to that and definitely not a lot of people would be able to like you know migrate from one of these universes to another and then to another and to see how like three different successful family units work and the one thing I learned from all of watching all of those operations and and I know there's others out there like the Hosier family that's touring the world at the moment and I know those families the one thing that they all have is that they um they all know each other and trust each other and there's not one loose link in that chain from the sound person to the tour manager they're all sound and they know each other like they've had all the heart to heart conversations on the tour bus, you know, the full extent. And Glenn, Lisa, Mick, even they would know the people they work for intimately. And 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 that's why they're successful. It's that the whole thing operates so beautifully like that. Just because you mentioned her name, uh, Lisa Hannigan, did you shoot the video for her when she was on the boat in Baltimore? Was that yes. you? That must have been a fraught experience, was it? When you've got like a camera and you're in this little boat going along. Are you like, one, worried worried about falling overboard and two, the water getting in your camera and like thousands of equipment being being ruined? I love the video. It's a, it's it's really great. And uh, I love all the videos for, for that album specifically. But that must have been a, uh, an interesting one to shoot. It was interesting. I guess my camera equipment is so small. Sometimes I feel like a bit of a tit really like, you know, because it's like really amateur small stuff it's just like a little handheld yeah you always go for like cheap small stuff you know like half sensor that particular thing was like canon 600d 
and everyone's like why aren't you filming on like a 5d and which is obviously like way more expensive and looks more hd or whatever but and i guess i didn't care about my camera too much you know i went through them like somebody said to me like you know everyone else wipes their lenses with lens cloths and i just use my sleeve and when they pointed that out to me i was using my sleeve like cleaning <laughs> cleaning a lens and i just like, oh, so didn't really care but i did that particular thing on the boat i i, I did I did think, you know, that the thing was going to capsize and that Lisa Hannigan would drown it. And then, then like, the world would never be the same again. And there'd be a song written about it the day the music died. Um, and This Ain't No Disco, uh, did you, again, like, was that kind of seen as a, as a niche? There's no music television anymore. Let's fill it. Was, I kind of think that that was a lot of late night conversations. Yeah. And it was like, let's fucking do it. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna do it. Were you there? <laughs> it was so many. I I remember That's the, where late, the best ideas come from. Yeah, we'd all be around the kitchen, like, and there's just a group of. It's it's great. All my friends, we all lift cameras for a living. You know, they wouldn't specifically they wouldn't film music specifically all the time. I get away with that, and maybe some of them are jealous about that. You know, fuck them. But we're all great friends, and uh, we're just sitting around a kitchen table, smoking, drinking, and that's how it did come about and it became a manifesto donald got really passionate about it for the first time you know since he did no disco and he like he he was a brilliant dj and really brilliant and he was pushed out for all the reasons that are pretty obvious that uh you know the radio stations are just so commercial so he really had a lot of steam to bring to the whole idea and i just thought of it like well you know i'll make five things and stick them all together rather than release them individually no problem easy you know yeah it just came together very quickly it's like how do we thread the five things together donald just donald will introduce this interview and collaboration and I guess it's such a it's such a beautiful thing that people received it so well. I absolutely know that people are starved for music television. They're starved to see and especially live performance. Like I think the closest thing we have to good live performance television is Jules Holland. And it's all just in a studio. That's the only option we have as music consumers to go and look at live performance that's in any way decent or that isn't like a, a three second fucking clip. Did did you ever try and get uh, the Saint No Disco on TV over here? Like you talk about music television in Ireland, like the only thing that I think people would say would be other voices, which is late night. You know, yeah. you have to have to search for it or watch it on the RT player the yeah. next day. Did you ever consider that, or were you like, let's just put it up on on YouTube? By all accounts, it's a fucking it's a nightmare to try and work with RTE on anything creative, anything. But it's like. If we went to them, they'd homogenize everything and they'd fuck it up completely. And there's just absolutely no way I'd go to RTE with it. At the same time, I find myself complaining, oh, we don't have the funds to do it. Why can't, like, it's a lot of energy out of all of us. And if we got paid that energy, if what we put out, we got back in, in money, we, you know, we'd be comfortable with fucking cars and stuff. So, no, I prefer to stick on my bike and absolutely do what creatively is right. It sounds like you're not interested in kind of the give and take of it. You know, you don't want to expend the energy on it. No. You know, you're kind of happy. I'm going to do my thing. And if people are along for the ride, 
that's absolutely it and it's a total naivety and one part of me is like suffering because it's like that's not real world miles you've got to communicate with all the people you've got to communicate with the labels that exist that are doing things in ireland and you've got to talk to them and you've got to let promoters in you've got to let nine or nine in like and i love all those people and i understand all their roles but they didn't have a role in this this my my role in this was like turn up at these musicians houses and talk to them and, and feel where they're at and let them play there don't put up stage and lights and put them on a podium and make them like commercially viable so it was just really like involving other people the more i'd involve any kind of industry or television or the more it became there the more it would actually just dilute the whole sincerity of the project you know so it's a it's a we're up against a brick wall and going and going further with it because it's quite draining but we we would we do plan to do a second season what is your highlight from it my highlight is nico mooley and uh connor's collaboration i think that that's unbelievable great i'm glad you think so i was like we were so delighted in the second episode that we um that saint patrick's day you know like saint patrick's day like it's like Christmas it's like Santa Claus came to us and said do you want money to make a second episode and it wasn't a lot of money but we uh, just to put their logo on it we we spent every cent of that going over to America and we had planned to do a thing with Connor maybe about a musician in Ireland another musician in Ireland that he admires actually it was going to be another musician in Ireland and then Patrick Stay came to us and we we're like Connor we can fly like to some part of the world some producer who loves you because we know there's a lot of producers who love you are there any you'd like to work with and he was like well you know what Nico Mooney's been bothering me like well, let's just do this kill, kill two uh, kill two birds here and let's just go over and I'll do some stuff with Nico and you film that and so it was really fortuitous and the serendipity and it felt beautiful that I had Conor O'Brien in New York on my schedule <laughs> because I've been on I've been away with Conor where we are definitely all on Conor's schedule like so it's great this time to go Conor's like right what are we doing well I want to get some views from uh, up in the Empire State do you want to come with me yeah grounds it was a beautiful feeling and any other highlights from the season that stand out for you no other than all the political reasons for doing it and like bolstering my own reasons for for filming the way i do and the artists that i choose to film them and in the way i film them i think it really just reinforced it gave me more confidence to, to keep doing what i do you know i guess any time working with rady pete and lancome must be well fuck me yeah like the opening scene of the first episode and rady pete playing that song oh, in front of the fire, fireplace yeah. i mean that for me that's just that like we started with the most incredible thing because they weren't well known back then no either yeah. that was kind of the start of, that was before the start of it all for them yeah, wasn't it yeah it was so exciting that they weren't well known because you like you you know that instantly like people are gonna love this and i guess bringing it into their homes you know that she was supposed to play something else. Like she was there to play something else with microphones, and we were gonna like set up a kind of a stage in a living room, and she was gonna go up on that, and she was gonna play on that. And then when she just played that in front of the fireplace as we were setting up, uh, and we filmed that, and it, that kind of set sets the bar for the whole show. Like <laughs> so, everything from then on for all the episodes had to be in a kitchen or in a house. You know, bringing it 
bringing it, literally bringing it into people's living rooms. Like this can happen in front of you and this is what it's like for it to happen in front of you. And now you're more addicted to this. Now you love music and you see it for what it is. So you've just done the documentary and what are the plans for 2019? How far, how far ahead are you looking or is it just like just stare, staring at the computer screen, editing, <laughs> editing, editing? Yeah, it's pretty much at the moment it's just December, isn't it? But the plans for 2019, I, I'll have been doing this 10 years in 2019. So there's loads of excuses to say like the 10 year anniversary of, Congratulations. of me. Hello, everybody. Look at me. But really, it's about, I guess I'm going to try and we're going to start another season of No Disco or This Ain't No Disco. Um, that's going to be a monumental effort, but it'll be worth the pain and the tears. And I can't really think further than that. I, I guess I want things to change and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing until they change. You know? Cool. Well, I think that that's it. I've kept you long enough. Great. Well, I'm glad. I hope it didn't bore anybody there. Mm-hmm.